Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The Italian regime of Benito Mussolini crushed its domestic opponents and invaded foreign countries to the sound of the following tune. Italy's current Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, can trace her political roots all the way back to Mussolini, but she prefers a different musical style. Along with the work of Ed Sheeran, Maloney quoted the following song by Maroon 5 in support of her political vision. Musical taste aside, what does the Italian far-right of today have in common with its fascist forebears? Our guest today is David Broder. David is Europe editor for Jacobin and the author of several books about Italian politics and history. His latest work, Mussolini's Grandchildren, has just been published by Pluto Press. This is the second part of a two-part interview. Today we'll be looking at the rise and record of Giorgia Maloney. You can hear the first part of David's interview about the Italian far-right on Jacobin Radio. What is the political background of Giorgia Maloney and how did she come to be the leader of a new party, Fratelli d'Italia? Well, the book is called Mussolini's Grandchildren. So there's an idea of kind of generational turnover. Obviously, I'm aware that generations don't exist insofar as they don't have fixed boundaries. But we certainly can say that different leaders, different figures have had different political experiences and somehow reflect the moment in which they grew up politically. So if we take Giorgia Milani, she joined the MSI in 1992. So at a moment in which the Soviet Union had collapsed, Italy was headed into a much more integrated European Union. Social violence and social conflict were much lesser than, say, in the 1970s, although still with uh, important uh, massacres, acts of political violence, and in this kind of end of history climate. So I think in Giorgio Milani's political formation is very marked by this political moment, and also is very much shaped by the tradition of the post-war MSI rather than by the fascist regime as such. She almost never refers to Mussolini or the regime period in any way, although occasionally does refer to things like you know, individual leaders of the regime as a praise of patriots and so on. But I think really her political formation is that of what she's grown up with, what she's learned from her sort of political mentors, people like Fabio uh, Rampelli, another leading figure in the party, what she's really learned is we were this oppressed political community, we were silenced, we were shut up, we were victimised, and now in the 1990s we could finally get a hearing. In her speech, her kind of confidence speech to Parliament in October last year, she mentioned the case of Sergio Ramelli, who was an 18-year-old member of the MSI who was killed by militants of Potere Operaio, of our left group, in 1975. And she says, this is what anti-fascism means. It means us being violently suppressed, murdered, killing a boy just because he was right-wing. I think she believes that. I think she feels that 
there's this anti-fascist and basically communist hegemony which allows people of her camp to be killed and she is finally redeeming that political side. Giorgia Milani often claims to be a sort of working class from a working class area, all this kind of stuff, which I think is very uh, hammed up and also sort of says, well, you know, she never wanted to be a career politician. She just would rather go back to ordinary life with her daughter, this kind of thing. And also claims that she used to be a journalist. As far as I can tell, Georgia Milani has never written an article as a journalist for any publications other than Secolo d'Italia, which is the party newspaper of the MSI as was, and now is the basically the party newspaper of Fratelli d'Italia. She became a, a councillor, a city councillor in Rome when she was 21 years old in uh, 1998. She then became the youth leader of the Alianza Nazionale during the uh, latter stages of the Fini period. Interestingly, in uh, I think as an example of the generational change between him and her, there's this incident where Fini, as president of the lower house in in 2008 he says at the party summer school well you know we should recognize that anti-fascist values are ours as well we're anti-communists but we're also anti-fascists and the young members of the party uh, boo him shout over him don't allow him to speak and melanie issues this open letter in response which says we're young people, we're born in the 70s and 80s, let's stop talking about fascism and anti-fascism. That's all in the past. So what she's saying is not like, we have finally accepted anti-fascism, but rather, let's stop recognising this as an issue, we're not going to talk about it anymore. And so what she does is she kind of claims to have overcome that, but in a way that actually is a very indulgent towards both the regime period and uh, even more so the MSI. Melani was youth minister in the final Berlusconi government from 2008 to 2011. That government collapsed uh, during the sovereign debt crisis. Indeed, it was given a a healthy push out of government by the uh, European Central Bank and also by Sarkozy and uh, Merkel. And after that government collapsed, it caused a lot of infighting on the right, partly because Berlusconi actually then handed his votes in Parliament to the technocratic government that replaced him. There was an attempt to force a leadership contest within the party, Popolo della Libertà, which was the merger of Berlusconi's old party, Forza Italia and Alianza Nazionale. Meloni's name was put forward as a possible candidate, but then Berlusconi refused to allow an internal primary. Moreover, this was also a moment in which the government of Mario Monti, so the technocratic government that that had followed the last Berlusconi government, was pushing through the European uh, fiscal compact, so the uh, the sort of measures that would limit the uh, deficit spending and so on. And that too produced a certain opposition within the right, including one important figure from Forza Italia, Guido Crosetto, who became one of the founders of Fratelli d'Italia too. So at the end of 2012, basically unable to oust Berlusconi from his leadership of the joint party, unable to force a, a contest, 
uh, and also made to vote through the uh, austerity measures sort of coming from Brussels, as they saw it. Melani, Ignazio La Russa, an important leader from the MSI tradition, they decide to create a party called Fratelli d'Italia and uh, Crosetto, who I just mentioned, a figure from Forza Italia, a figure not from the fascist tradition, joins them. So at the end of 2012, they set up this party, Fratelli d'Italia. They have a bit of infighting with other far-right groups over who gets to use the MSI logo, basically through their influence on the on the sort of party foundation. They managed to grab hold of it. But Fratelli d'Italia starts life as a very small party. In the 2013 general election, which is held only two months after the party is founded, they got less than 2% of the vote. In fact, even in the 2018 election, they only got 4% of the vote. Uh, and last year, 26%. So I think th- this also helps a certain misrepresentation of the party, quite common in international media. The idea that it's made this like sudden breakthrough, that this party's kind of come from nothing, but because Italian politics is so volatile, it's risen from 4 to 26% in the, just in you know, four years. So, of course, it's true, literally, that it's made a rapid electoral rise. But at the same time, you know, this is the continuation of a party with very long roots and which already in the 1990s was a party of government. In fact, the vote for Fratelli d'Italia now, they got about 7 million votes in the, in the general election last September, isn't actually that much higher than the Alianza Nazionale achieved in the 1990s where it got to almost 6 million votes. So there's certainly a a progression, but this party hasn't come from nowhere. It has a very long history, and it is really a a recreation of the historic party. And if we look at the kind of membership of the party, uh, if we look at the cadres of the party, they're almost all veterans of of the MSI, even before Alianza Nacional. In 2020, Maloney spoke at an international right-wing conference that was held in Rome. As well as quoting Tolkien, she sought to associate her political worldview with two historical figures, Pope John Paul II and Ronald Reagan. John Paul II, the Patriot Pope, knew perfectly well that nations and the fact of belonging to a people sharing the same historical memory were the bedrock of the freedom of every man. He never tired to repeating that there is no Europe without Christianity, a teaching which is more topical than, uh, than ever today, when the Christian identity of Europe is under attack by a distorted secularism that even attacks the symbol of the Christian tradition while throwing open the gates to the most intransigent form of Islam that wants to apply Sharia law in our European homelands and which lies at the heart of the Islamic terrorism that has caused bloodshed in Europe and in the United States. Christian patriot, also critic of mass immigration. When you think about that today, John Paul II would be on the European Union's blacklist as a dangerous subversive, but not for us. Neither would Ronald Reagan have farther any better. More than any president of the United States, Reagan stood for the American we the people uh, of that preamble to the Constitution that based national democracy on the principle of popular sovereignty and other great enemy of the globalist elites. 
How did the right-wing current deriving from the MSI tradition relate to Matteo Salvini and the Lega? Well, in the 1990s, the MSI had very poor relations with the Lega. In fact, in the 1994 election, when there was the first version of the coalition we now consider normal, so in every Italian election, every Italian regional election, we have this coalition, Berlusconi, the Lega, and the post-fascists, through their various names. In the 1994 election, there were two separate coalitions, Berlusconi plus MSI, and also Berlusconi plus Lega, but the Lega and MSI weren't allied. Often in disputes between the two parties, Umberto Bossi, uh, the then leader of the Lega, would sort of use a kind of anti-fascist rhetoric, would call the MSI fascists and so on. In that period, the Lega was also a northern regionalist or even northern separatist party. In the period of Fratelli d'Italia's creation, so as I said, it was created at the end of 2012. This was also a moment when the Lega was in crisis. In fact, its historic uh, leader, Umberto Bossi, faced criminal charges for uh, corruption. In fact, was convicted and the party also fared very poorly in the 2013 general election. Salvini really kind of revolutionized the Lega after becoming its leader that same year. So importantly, Salvini turned the Lega into an all-Italian nationalist party. So faced with the kind of crisis of the right, he made the Lega no longer a junior partner to Berlusconi, but a party that started to organize all over Italy. Actually, because of the Lega's lack of activists in central and southern Italy, in the kind of period of 2014, 2015, the Lega actually established very close relations with Casa Pound, a neo-fascist social centre originally based in Rome. And uh, in fact, we could say the Lega had closer relations with that part of the neo-fascist milieu than Fratelli d'Italia did. And Fratelli d'Italia was very much pulled along in the wake of the Lega uh, as it became the main force on the right. There's also an interesting study which shows that the electoral rise of the Lega in that period benefited very heavily from switchers from the former MSI, that the Lega, in fact, performed better in the very areas where the MSI had historically been uh, strong, which could be uh, sort of stereotyped as, as, as doing better in southern Italy, but actually the, the picture is a lot more complex. But I think what we can say is that overall, there's a, a very great uh, porosity, a very great turnover of voters and even activists between the right-wing parties following the kind of rising star of the day. In the late 2010s, also because of this link with Casa Pound, we saw a lot of discussion of the fact that the Lega was kind of hoovering up local councillors, activists and so on from the, the post-fascist tradition. And yeah, that kind of continued right up till 2019, peaking, of course, when Salvini was the interior minister as well as deputy prime minister, and the Lega was polling to up to 35%. Far-right groups together in the shadow of Milan Cathedral in Duomo Square. At the peak of Salvini's popularity, he brought European far-right leaders like Marine Le Pen and Gert Wilders to Milan for a campaign rally. 
Al Jazeera carried this report ahead of the 2019 European elections. Salvini has teamed up with other nationalist leaders to form the European of Nations and Freedom Group. After next week's European elections, it hopes to become the third biggest party in Parliament. Those who will vote for the League on the 26th of May, if you help us bring the League from first Italian party to first European party, we will garrison not only the Italian borders, but the European borders. Here, no one enters without permission. This is what we ask you to do. Beneath this show of unity lies a divide over their vision of Europe's future. Far-right groups are split when it comes to managing government budgets and how to redistribute migrants across the region. Another issue is Russia's influence on EU policy. While some nationalists hope to strengthen ties with Russia, others are suspicious of Moscow's intent. Despite this, opinion polls predict nationalist parties will win more seats in Parliament, which could see them play a greater role shaping EU policy. Now that picture seems radically changed, and in fact the, the relative balance of force has been inverted. But part of the reason for that too is that a very heavy proportion, even a majority of Fratelli d'Italia's voters now, are people who switched from the Lega very recently. Of course, some of them had switched twice. Many had sort of voted for Alianza Nazionale, then for the Lega, now for Fratelli d'Italia. But really, we see the voters are very happy to move between these parties. And the overall right-wing bloc uh, hasn't really grown uh, that much. An important reason why they're switching is the Lega's well, there's kind of two elements, one of which is that Salvini quit the government in summer 2019, uh, the alliance with Five Star. Salvini quit trying to force elections, which would then kind of convert his polling lead into a majority in parliament. And he failed to force the election. So it was a big tactical misstep. Then during the pandemic, the so-called National Unity Government was formed under Mario Draghi, the sort of, uh, career technocrat, former central banker and so on, in which the Lega and Forza Italia took part alongside the Democrats and Five Star. So the Lega's kind of oppositional uh, message was strongly blunted by the fact that it was in the government, led by a figure who they would uh, often refer to as left wing. During the Draghi government, Milani often kind of boasted that Hers was the only party of opposition. Indeed, that hers was the only part of the right that was, as she put it, monogamous. Uh, so only Fratelli d'Italia would refuse to make these kind of technocratic lash-ups. And she claimed that you know since 2011, there have been all these governments where the left didn't win the election, but they supposedly took power, and that voting for her uh, was the only way to uh, to, to break the the left's stranglehold. So I wouldn't doubt that uh, the success of Fratelli d'Italia also owes to a certain tactical cleverness, on the one hand being like the only opposition party, and indeed in a political system that is generally volatile and generally doesn't see incumbents do well, but as well as kind of monopolizing the kind of oppositional discourse, she also made this big effort to 
create the image of the party as constructive, as loyal to international partners, as a conservative force and not a kind of generically populist or dangerous one. Uh, so what we saw develop was the strategy which Fratelli d'Italia is very successfully following, which is on the one hand to, in matters of international politics, of Italy's place in European and Atlantic alliances, to pose as a staunch ally of the United States and not as a force for disruption, but then internally to whip up a constant atmosphere of hysterical polarization around identity politics. So they're kind of both feeding the hardcore of their base, while also kind of covering off the element of being a kind of, uh, in a way, quite conventional, Reaganite, free marketeer, low-tax conservative party. So I think that that's arrived at something of a kind of winning formula. Of course, the government's only been in place for six months, but it seems successful in the sense of being able to maintain a kind of constant electoral campaign, uh, even from the heights of government, while also in many of its choices, kind of reassuring right-wing voters. What has the concrete record of Maloney's government been so far, and how would you say it compares to her chosen allies on the European stage, such as Hungary's Viktor Orban? There's been a lot of articles, particularly on the six-month anniversary of Maloney's government forming, which was in late uh, April. So we have this kind of reading, for example, Fraser Nelson uh, wrote an article in The Telegraph, there was one in The Washington Post and so on, which say, well, all these people like me, like me myself, all these people said, oh, she's rooted in fascism and so on. And yet, where is the big explosion? Where's the big crisis? Where's the chaos? And I think that this is a, a total misrepresentation of the, the point I'm making, which is not a kind of generic attempt to kind of spread alarmism, but rather shows how over some three decades, the post-fascist tradition has integrated itself into the right. So if we look at things like you know, the idea that Milani would ever seek some sort of italexit some even a break with the Eurozone, even a challenge to deficit rules, uh, the idea that she'd break with NATO or stop support for Ukraine. There was no chance she'd do any of those things. And indeed, it was very widely predicted by everyone studying the history of this party that it would pursue the foreign policy line it has. Shortly after the invasion of Ukraine began, Maloney spoke at the Conservative Political Action Conference in the US. Being here is the best way to clarify where we stand on this conflict. She accused Joe Biden of encouraging the invasion by withdrawing American troops from Afghanistan. We are on the side of freedom. And indeed, we are on the side of a proud nation that is teaching the world what it means to fight for freedom. Of course, as many of you will agree, no one gets it out of my head that without the outrageous withdrawal of troops from Kabul yesterday, we would have never seen the tragic siege of Kiev today. And certainly, no one would be preparing to see Taiwan occupied tomorrow. For in foreign policy, 
When it comes to defending strategic interests and core values, a display of weakness is not an option. The ancient Romans used to say, si vis pacem parabellum, if you want peace, prepare for war. After becoming prime minister, Maloney recorded a message to Italian Americans, promising to maintain and strengthen ties across the Atlantic. Only by working together can we succeed in the face of the many challenges ahead of us. Italians who crossed the Atlantic in the last two centuries highly contributed to the development, prosperity and strength of the U.S., as President Biden recognized in his Columbus Day proclamation. They have worked every day to build a bridge between America and Italy, made of common values, freedom, equality, and democracy, an unshakable alliance, a strategic partnership, and a true and deep friendship. I assure you that this government will do its utmost to make the relationship with the United States grow even stronger. Long live America. Viva l'Italia. That said, I mean, I think that the, in many ways, the government is a continuation of the previous right-wing governments we've seen in Italy, and they have done very specific and very nasty things. So one of them could be said to be at the level of rhetoric, which is the continual reference to the idea of ethnic substitution, the idea that Italians are being replaced by immigrants, perhaps even that this is an organized plot. Uh, Meloni has herself regularly referred to great replacement theory. So there's various policies which are aimed at combating this supposed threat. So basically, one element is to try and incentivize birth rates with tax cuts for families who have many children. One thing is to try and push unemployed Italians into work by uh, removing unemployment benefits, which is one of the most important things the government has done so far, getting rid of the so-called citizen's income and replacing it with an extremely conditional uh, workfare-based system, which, as the agriculture minister, Meloni's uh, brother-in-law put it, you know, we should be encouraging unemployed people to work in the fields rather than accept that we have to import slaves. So we have all this idea around lazy unemployed people are creating demand for immigration, so we need to force them to work instead. So, you know, while there's this kind of obsession with population decline and so on, the government's also quite clear that it doesn't mean that just anyone kind of qualifies to be a uh, Italian family. So one thing the government has done is to strip recognition of same-sex parents. This is often posed as a struggle against paid-for uh, surrogacy, said by one representative of uh, Fratelli d'Italia to be a crime worse than paedophilia. But also it means stripping recognition from, for example, lesbian couples who have children through IVF. Immigrants' children in Italy are not entitled to citizenship, and the government has also made uh, taken certain measures uh, aimed at repressing uh, migration or at least making migrants' uh, condition more precarious and vulnerable. So things like uh, removing the uh, uh, so-called special protection, which is what allows asylum seekers to remain in Italy while their claims are being processed. Also, there's been a clampdown on migrant rescue NGOs. More broadly, one of the important agenda items of the government is to change the constitution, basically to erase the sort of legacy of the post-war republic, which was a party-based and parliamentary system, 
in order to create some sort of presidentialist system with a stronger executive, either through electing the president or a slightly curious proposal now offered, which is to directly elect the prime minister. Uh, this is a sort of very old political sort of battle horse of the MSI tradition, and now Maloney seems to be seeing it through. So with many difficulties, with likely opposition, difficult to know if she'll have the numbers, but really what the government is trying to do is, on the one hand, to erase the kind of anti-fascist legacy of the post-war republic, to rewrite the constitution, both to in- strengthen the government, but also to make Fratelli d'Italia into a sort of founding fathers of the uh, Italian democracy in a way which they, the MSI never could have been by putting its kind of imprint on the constitution. Then at the same time, we have this polarization of most internal political life around the family redefining its boundaries in this campaign to boost birth rates, but of Italian and heterosexual families and so on. At the Rome conference in 2020, Maloney offered strong backing to the right-wing governments of Hungary and Poland. She linked that stand with support for Israel. Modern national conservatism defends the identities of nations as the basis for the new forms of cooperation. That is why, while defending Italian sovereignty, we cannot forget to defend Viktor Orban's Hungary or Kaczynski's Poland, once again under attack from the European progressive mainstream. That is why we defend, without the shameful ambiguity typical of the left, the right of the state of Israel to its security and future and peace and prosperity. In terms of the European comparisons, as I said, I think it was always unlikely there'd be some sort of italexit or split or this kind of thing. What they're trying to do is to change the European Union from within. I mentioned earlier with Berlusconi that he'd created a new right-wing alliance in which his party, Forza Italia, a kind of pro-business and personal vehicle allied with the the Lega and then with the post-fascist party. And really what Fratelli d'Italia want to do, what they're talking about, is to recreate a similar alliance at the European level. So what they're talking about is after the European elections in 2024 to form an alliance between the European People's Party, which is the main Christian democratic group, parties like the German CDU, and then with Maloney's own grouping, which is called ECR, European Conservatives and Reformists. So this uh, ECR, her European party, includes forces like Vox uh, in Spain, which is a far-right party, which stands a very good chance of entering national government in the general election in December in Spain. There's a good chance there'll be an alliance of Partido Popular, the conservative uh, force, and then Vox, uh, the far right. Uh, In Poland, uh, Law and Justice is the ECR party. Uh, They're the party of government there. Uh, We can also find cases like, for example, Sweden, where a centre-right government is reliant on the uh, votes of uh, Sweden Democrats, a party created by neo-Nazis in the 80s, but which has followed a kind of similar evolution to uh, Alianza Nazionale, Fratelli d'Italia, and so on. So I think in these cases, what we're seeing is a kind of softening of the divide that might once have existed 
between the centre-right or sort of Christian Democrat tradition, uh, more accurately, between that tradition and the sort of post-fascist or ex-collaborationist or far-right parties. Britain's Conservative Prime Minister Rishi Sunak gave Maloney a warm welcome when she came to London in April of this year. His office released a video to celebrate the occasion, complete with jaunty music. Georgia, it's wonderful to welcome you to London to discuss the friendship between our two countries. And it's a, it's a friendship that's built on decades of collaboration in the G7, in NATO, uh, but also the close links between our people, our economies. And on that note, I wanted to pay tribute to you for your very careful handling of the Italian economy, which has brought stability in uncertain times. And I think the values between our two countries are very aligned. Grazie, Georgia. (laughs) Benvenuta a Londra. Thank you very much. A big driver of this has been the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, On the one hand, that's created a certain split in the far-right camp in the sense that people like Le Pen and uh, Salvini in particular have for some years had close relations with Moscow. Uh, If we think that the Lega actually formed a formal alliance with United Russia, which is the main uh, uh, pro-Putin party in the Duma, but also, of course, Viktor Orban's Hungary and indeed Vucic in uh, Serbia. So some of these like hard right governments have, uh, have either taken very equivocal or somewhat pro-Russia positions. So that's created a certain split within the right. But at the same time, it's also really helped uh, Milani's coalition. If we think that law and justice, the Polish party of government, uh, had been subject to special measures and sanction threats from the EU uh, only a couple of years ago because of its uh, interference with the independence of the judiciary, whereas now Poland is the pivot of European support for Ukraine, and it's been very much kind of welcomed in from the cold. When Emmanuel Macron said that Europe needs more strategic independence from the United States, Morawiecki, the Polish prime minister, said, no, our strategic choice should be closer relations with the United States. So I think there's this kind of Atlanticist, strongly pro-NATO, strongly anti-Russia, strongly anti-China wing of the right that is being able to position itself as a kind of conservative force able to ally with Christian Democrats. And if they manage to do that in the 2024 European elections, following their success in some national elections, that will play an important role in a tipping a hegemony in the EU further to the right, not only legitimizing them, but also in, you know, for example, in the in the pick of uh, commissioners and this kind of thing. So, yeah, I think that they are they are managing to sort of change the sort of axis, the central axis in the EU away from the kind of classic grand coalition of Christian Democrats and Social Democrats towards a sort of new grouping which unites uh, the the sort of hard and far right and makes that an an ally for uh, Christian Democrats. In the first four months of this year, more than 400 people drowned while attempting to cross the Mediterranean. The following clip comes from an interview with a spokesman for Sea-Watch on France Van Quatre. He accused Maloney's government of deliberately blocking rescue missions that could have saved people's lives. Tell us what the situation's like there right now. 
So the current situation here in Lampedusa is quite chaotic and what we have also seen in the last couple of days is quite uncommon, uh, especially the bigger boats uh, carrying up to 400-500 persons who departed from Tobruk and Benghazi, so from the east from Libya, uh, are not that usual. Uh, normally the most common departure points are either from Tripoli or Zawiya, uh, but we have seen of course also then a rise uh, from uh, departures from Tunisia, where people are forced to travel with sea, really sea unworthy iron boats to the island of Lampedusa. So the situation here is not has not really changed in the last couple of weeks or last couple of months, but the big boats coming from uh, the east of Libya are something that we haven't seen uh, since quite a while. Well, the Italian government thinks enough has changed to today um, declare a state of emergency in Italy. Um, that will free up some €5 million Euros in funds. What's your reaction to that declaration? So this will absolutely um, has no change uh, in the situation that we're going to face in the current uh, in the central Mediterranean Sea. What we would need is a state-financed uh, rescue program, and also the Italian government has released a decree which is um, saying that uh, sea rescue NGO vessels like our ones, the Sea Watch Three and Sea Watch Five, are forced to leave the area of operation after having one rescue. And then we're also getting super far north uh, port of disembarkations assigned. So the reason why are so many persons are drowning at the moment is clear the fact that Italy has kicked out all the rescue ships and currently there's no one who could rescue the persons. Can you tell us then to what extent you're able to operate sort of without the authority of the Italian government? If you at Sea Watch know there is a ship in distress, there are people there whose lives are at risk, can you go and get them or do you need the Italian government's OK if that boat is in Italian waters? So the main problem what we have right now is that we only are allowed to fly with our two reconnaissance aircrafts, uh, Seabird 1 and Seabird 2. But our two ships are not allowed to go to the search and rescue area at the moment. So what we try is definitely also to cooperate and to co-work with the Italian state and especially also the maritime rescue centers, which are based in Malta and Italy. But they are denying any responsibility. So when we, for example, see the boat that we have found on Sunday with 400 persons on board, we urge the rescue coordination center in Malta to send the ship but they just ordered uh, a merchant vessel to um, hand out fuel so they can make their way by their own to Italy. So currently, it's like a one way for us. We can fly, we can find these boats, but we are not allowed to cooperate with state authorities because they're denying any responsibility. They don't pick up the phone. They don't answer on our emails. So the only thing that we can do right now is the documentation of these violations against human rights. If Berlusconi established a template for right-wing politics that was later taken up by Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, among others, would you say that Maloney could do something similar for the period to come? So I think in a way she has for the reason I mentioned, which is that in the kind of coalition that Berlusconi introduced in the 1990s, bring together the sort of broad right, including sort of post-fascist elements, that, as I said, we can see that in other countries, Spain, somewhat in Sweden, uh, in France, if we think people like Eric Zemmour would certainly hope to be able to achieve the same thing. But I think the contradiction in that and the limit of the comparison with Berlusconi's role in the 1990s 
is the internal contradiction in Maloney's project I mentioned already, which is that it would appear that the international ambition, the kind of foreign policy agenda, is built on a kind of assumption of a, a certain a political weakness that you know that Italy is a bit of a second rate power, so can't really do anything to change Italy's position in the eurozone can't really uh, and certainly uh, no hope of like leaving or setting off in a different direction and that instead we have this like internal identity politics obsession which is much more extreme even than in the 1990s of course if we look at you know for example anton jaeger's interesting work on uh, hyper politics it kind of conforms to that image right in the sense that on the one hand the big political choices seem either uh, unchallengeable or at least so determined from the outside as to be difficult for national governments to deal with not really the stakes of politics then at the same time you have this very intense kind of media polarization uh, around identity and so on uh, of course the fact that it's identity politics and culture wars doesn't mean it lacks material consequences but even so it accepts many important political decisions are outside of what governments can really change. It could be said that, well, Berlusconi's governments didn't actually change that much and themselves kind of conformed to a model of sort of limited sovereignty. Uh, so I think in, in that sense, the, 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 the comparison holds. But I think that um, what we're seeing in Italy strangely kind of accepts that uh, Italy isn't a major power, isn't a major international force, uh, perhaps if the French government went over to the far right, it would probably have a more profound effect on changing things like European foreign policy, maybe on the terms of Euro membership and so on as well. But I think certainly in two ways, Milani has set an example for change in European politics, one of which is the far right no longer just being a kind of junior ally or a sort of um, sort of half in half out force, as in you know, in the Swedish case I mentioned, the Sweden Democrats were the biggest right wing party and yet only offer external support to the government. So in Italy, I think it's further along in the sense that the the far right were welcomed into the government coalition, but have now become the dominant force within it, and doing so by taking the leadership of the right wing bloc rather than a kind of transversal populism. But I think the the issue of constitutional change that Milani is pursuing is also a, an important indicator for what uh, other right-wing forces could do. I think that she'll have a lot of difficulty in changing the constitution, probably because she'll need to use a referendum in order to do it. But it's really changing the identity of the state. It's something we saw with Orbán's Hungary, of course, where you know, they remove republic from the name of the country, they sort of assert its Christian roots and so on. But they also go very far in terms of uh, shutting down the space for their uh, opponents to organise, also in terms of things like you know, criminalising apologia for communism and this kind of thing. So I'd say that Fratelli d'Italia, somewhat like the Eastern European examples, has made very great headway in changing Italy from a republic with a sort of official anti-fascist ideology to one where anti-communism is uh, at least as strong. What I don't see so much is the kind of transformative 
social agenda in terms of reorganizing the sort of economic fundamentals and so on. Uh, in fact, what I really see more in Fratelli d'Italia is the attempt to sort of reverse course to an earlier moment of globalization, an attempt to uphold kind of Reaganite ideas of sort of self-sufficiency, bootstraps ideology, and so on. And I'm not really sure how sustainable that is. Moreover, in terms of the issues around like national identity and immigration, on the one hand, it must be said that although I don't particularly wish to criticize Meloni on the grounds of just like competence, it must be said that immigration flows are not being limited successfully by this government. The reason why people try and make it to Italy, why they risk their lives to do so, are to do with the the things that are pushing them away from their homes to begin with. So, of course, uh, if we think of things like the, the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, you know, that set many hundreds of thousands of people on the move all over the Middle East and North Africa. So I think that while the government is fighting a, a kind of rearguard action, as they would call it, in defense of the Italian ethnicity, trying to preserve citizenship only for whites or European Christians, as they might say. All lives matter. Italian lives matter. Italian lives matter. Uh, if they're trying to uh, boost Italian birth rates and get Italian women to be mothers again. I think all of that stuff is extremely difficult for them to fulfill. I think they're kind of pretty irreversible processes that they have really no hope of of reversing. So I think that kind of obsession uh, is certainly an important element in galvanizing the identity of their militants and perhaps of their voters. But I really don't expect that they'll be able to make any kind of real uh, progress, as they would see it, in, uh, in turning that around. Many thanks to David Broder for that introduction to Italy's far right. You can learn more about the subject from his book Mussolini's Grandchildren, which is out now from Pluto Press. This was the second part of a two-part interview. You can listen to the first part on Jacobin Radio.